healthcare is broken, and the healthcare industry is not going to fix itself. Reconstructing Healthcare is a podcast series where we interview the rebel entrepreneurs working tirelessly to disrupt the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we break down everything that's wrong with the current healthcare system and provide you with a blueprint to create better results. Now, here's your host, Michael Maneri. Hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, our guest is AJ Loicano from Capital RX. AJ, welcome. Uh, thank you for having me, Michael. So here's the game plan. What we try to do on this show is challenge status quo purchasing methods and educate our audience on non-traditional methods to either lower their healthcare costs or improve value for their employees. Sound like something you want to help with? Absolutely. So to get us started, I'm going to read a brief bio about Capital RX and yourself. So the audience has some context about who they're listening to, and then we'll jump into it. AJ Loicano is a serial entrepreneur with over 20 years of experience in pharmacy benefits, finance, and software development. As the CEO of Capital RX, his mission is to create the first efficient market for prescription prices and provide employer groups with the highest standard of patient care. To achieve this goal, AJ has spent his career studying the pharmaceutical supply chain and producing engineering solutions that have continually redefined the pharmacy benefits industry. Prior to Capital RX, AJ was a co-founder of Truveris, where he served for eight years as CEO, CIO, and board member, leading the company to record growth. Before Truveris, AJ co-founded SMS Partners, a joint venture with Rheology, and in 2010 exited the partnership with a buyout. In his first venture, AJ started Victrix, a pharmaceutical supply chain consultancy, and successfully sold the company to Chrysalis Solutions in 2007. AJ is a graduate of Manhattanville College, where he studied finance while playing varsity soccer and rugby. AJ, anything else you'd like to share? No, I think uh, you encapsulated my life in a few seconds. It was kind of scary. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about your, your career here. You started out in finance, then proceeded to launch a number of companies in the pharma industry prior to launching Capital RX. So tell us a little bit about your career path and, and how you, you got to this point of deciding, I need to launch a PBM. You know, what's funny is, you know, oftentimes your parents try and steer you in a direction. And I always point out that my grandfather and father were both independent pharmacists and they tried so hard to bring me into the business and I resisted. Little did I know that fate would bind me to their career in some way or form. And so, you know, I started in finance, you know, out of college. I tell a story all the time that I was literally uh, sitting at my desk kind of, you know, waiting to kind of for the market to close. And a friend who worked with me at the financial firm I worked at, uh, Fidelity Investments, gave me a call and he basically said, what are you doing? And I said, what do you think I'm doing? Waiting for the market to close. He said, well, do you want to grab a beer? And I said, Tuesday beer. I'm like, wow, what's the occasion? And he says, I'm starting a new business. And I'm just like, oh my God, that sounds so exciting. What is it? And he goes, I don't know, but you're going to be my business partner. And you know, I thought nothing of it, but later that afternoon, Ned Johnson, who was the CEO of Fidelity at the time, sent an email out to the entire company. And he said that we had a trillion, that's with a T, of money under management for the first time. And it was in that moment I felt so small in the universe that I said, they don't need my help. This company is going to be fine for decades to come. And so I gave notice that afternoon and I never looked back. And so, you know, you kind of say, there are moments in life you don't know the universe is speaking to you. That was one of them. You know, and the second part was how did I end up in pharma is I like inelastic demand curves. So if we're going to start a business, I always think that there are two inelastic demand curves. One is energy services, and it's really more on electricity in the sense that we need power for our homes, heat, things like that. Yep. But we don't live in the energy belt of Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma. But I do live in the pharma belt of New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Pennsylvania. So we're in the pharma belt. What are we going to do? I read an article in Forbes at the time about supply chain software and the need to do conversions from old MRP to MRP2. And a lot of people don't realize is when you do a software conversion for a pharmaceutical company, 
they have plants around the globe. So you're going to have to do the same install in all the different countries they manufacture within. And so this could oftentimes be dozens and dozens of implementations. So I created a bench of engineers in which you had to speak at least two or three languages. So if we're doing an install in Japan, we have the person for you. If we're doing an install in Colombia, we have your person for you. And I believe it or not, I did that for seven years. I learned so much about supply chain software. I learned so much about pricing. And this is interesting is when you work on supply chain, everything has a price. Everything is a thought of a bill of materials down to what we're shipping in a product for, thinking gross to net even. And then you get all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which would be my next you know, kind of venture in pharmacy, which was working on the audit and procurement side. Something really weird happens. You go from a world in manufacturing where everything has a price down to the ingredients that are in the drug to a world in which there are no prices. I mean, you have a 50 to 100 page contract with a PBM and a payer, and there's not a single price in it. And I'm just like, wait, where did we lose the prices? Because <laughs> I, I, you know, I started on the manufacturing side and everything has a price. And you end up in this world where there are no prices and a handful of select organizations and subject matter experts can help navigate these very opaque and complex waters that constantly shift. And so... I thought there was a better way. And to your point, how did I end up in pharmacy? It was a little bit by accident, a little bit by, I like the kind of nature of pharmaceuticals. But lastly is I began to appreciate the inefficiency in the need for improvement. And it became kind of a lifelong study. I mean, the majority of my adult life, sad to say, has been studying the pharmacy supply chain. <laughs> Well, I, I think that's okay because it got you to where you are are today, and you know I think we'll we'll get into some of the good stuff that you guys are doing. But let's um let's let's kind of start at the macro level, and then we'll kind of you know drill down into Capital RX. So prescription drug pricing, as you just alluded to, right, is one of the most misunderstood components of the healthcare cost equation. And so I just did a, a training for our five California offices, and and one of the things I highlighted was waste in formularies and the problem with covering expensive drugs that have zero clinical value. It's almost laughable that we, we have this situation and yet it exists. And so I think this is one of many examples of systemic issues in this pharmacy space. And so I'd like to hear your thoughts. You know, what do you think are some of the key issues prescription drug delivery and payment system today? And you just, you just alluded to some, but I'd like you to opine, opine a little bit more. Yeah, I think it's, we're seeing a shift of volume to value. And, you know, when you have a, a volume assessment, what am I saying? It's, it's large purchasing power. It's an assessment relative to discounts and kind of this thought process of more equals less on a discounted schedule that if I'm a, a big PBM, I provide more value. If I buy more of a drug, I'm getting more of a discount. And obviously, this is a sound economic policy if we could see every factor and every aspect of pricing, but we don't. And that's the inefficiency of the market. So, you know, I, I want to say at the, at the highest level, you know, what's the first problem is we've been doing things the same way for 20 years. And I point this out. I don't recognize any other industry over 20 years. I mean, just look at your cell phone. Remember what you used 20 years ago? It wasn't smart. You know, if you look at your laptop, it was probably five times the size and the battery power was probably an hour and a half, you know. And so I don't care if it's real estate to finance, the world has changed except for pharmacy benefits. And, you know, and I point this out is when you have the perfect industry, it has some really unique factors. It's an inelastic demand curve. So it doesn't matter what happens in the stock market today. It doesn't matter with interest rates. Patient utilization, for the most part, holds rock steady. The next part of it that's unique is inflation. And I point this out all the time. Drug prices go up predominantly under the current system. And more importantly, the proliferation of specialty drugs, more expensive therapies is continuing to push that. So Icuvia you know, says that today we're about $500 billion top line domestic in the US and annual drug spend. And by 2030, we may be approaching a trillion dollars. So the train isn't slowing down. So when you have a great market, you don't innovate. That's why we haven't seen any changes. You consolidate, you just buy more. We saw mega merger, your mega merger, and it continues to this day. And so because of this, over the time, the narrative always was bigger is better volume, but we're seeing a shift to value. And you mentioned something that's very important to me because when you talk about 
a therapy where you talk about a formulary. The way that we gauge value today broadly in the industry is inaccurate. And the example I give is tale of two drugs in the same therapeutic category. So let's pause for a second and say, I have drug A and it's a $50,000 a year therapy, annual therapy, specialty drug, but it rebates 50%, not bad. I have in the same therapeutic category, a $40,000 drug, and it rebates approximately 45%. Which drug looks better on a spreadsheet? The prior, the first drug. Yeah. All day and Sunday, it is a spreadsheet rock star because what is it doing? It discounts heavier and it provides a greater rebatable script. It's pumping up that specialty rebate price. Now, what is the lower net cost to the plan? The second drug. We never see this in any evaluation. Why? Well, the first problem is back to not even having all the financial information to make this. I'm not blaming anyone. I'm saying most people are making do with the hand that they're dealt. And what I mean by that is rebates are not quoted on an NDC 11 basis. You do not know what drug A pays versus drug B in a therapeutic category. And the reason for this, back to volume versus value, is predominantly the traditional PBM industry loves this model because why do they like a one-size-fits-all formulary? Because it controls the supply chain. You know, I point this out all the time. If you think for a second, and, and this is sad, most people believe that pharmaceutical manufacturers are killing it through drug inflation. They are profitable, but they are not the greatest beneficiaries of inflation. And the reason for this, in 2003, we saw roughly the birth of the managed formulary, pay-to-play economics. And what is that? Is it's basically the PBMs and the carriers saying, everyone needs to adopt one formulary. And if you do this, I'll give you the best rebates. And we all kind of the industry bought into this because it made sense. Back then it was volume. We really weren't thinking value yet or a more precise way of thinking about pricing and value. And, and it's this transition that we saw. And so every time a drug manufacturer under the current system raises the price of a drug by a dollar, I always point out roughly 80 cents goes down the supply chain and the money ends up in the hands of the actual PBM or carrier. And because the inefficiencies in the market, there are winners and losers under the system. The people that have better guidance, better information, but they're certainly not capturing all that value because of spread pricing. And the other side of it, there are losers. There are small plans that don't even see rebates or a fractional amount of the value. And so it's all of this inefficiency and distortion around repricing and optics that makes for such a complex scenario. And what it should be is at the basis is what I try and point out is who are the buyers and sellers in this equation? The sellers on some level you could say are manufacturers, but the way our supply chain works, the sellers for the payers are really the retail pharmacies, the mail and specialty facilities. And the buyers are the employer groups. Those could be corporations, those could be unions, those could be municipalities, et cetera. And buyers and sellers should freely communicate on price. It's how every other industry works in the United States, except for pharma. It is so weird. The PBMs that are the rent seekers in the middle because they tax transactions, they prevent the buy and sell side from freely communicating. That's frustrating. So that last statement there really succinctly kind of identifies the problem, right? You've got the pharmacies that are purchasing the drugs at a certain cost, right? And you've got the payers who are purchasing the drug at some undisclosed markup, right? That the middleman, the traditional PBM is creating. So pharmacy buys it for eight PBM, sell adds a markup and the employer pays 20 bucks, Right. And, there, and therein lies sort of that black box spread margin that is, is undisclosed and sort of the inefficient market. But let's just peel back the, the layer of the onion a little bit as far as what employers are told. I want, like the language that we're given is that I'm a PBM and I'll get you pricing a discount of X from AWP, meaning average wholesale price. So, the issue here is, what is AWP? Yes. Right? And what the hell does that mean relative to the price that the pharmacy paid for it? Uh, agreed. And, you know, 
I just had this conversation with colleagues on a call this morning and, you know, you know, we have a broad base of executives in our company that came from PBMs, they came from the consulting side of the business, they came from pharmacies, clinical, hospital chains, et cetera. You know, and it's, and it's a great cross-section of, of visibility and viewpoints. And we started talking about why do people trust inherently a system around AWP when they know it's flawed. But what I don't think people understand is the people that publish AWP know it's flawed. And you know, and, and you know, it's funny that you say this, this is actually open on my desktop and this was not in preparation. This just happened to be part of my morning call, which was if you go to Walters Kluwer's website that is, owns Medispan that publishes AWP, they have a download that anyone can download. It's called US Drug Price Data Policy. And it says in the first paragraph, important information about AWP data. And you know, and this is fascinating. In the second sentence, it says, AWP is not derived from and does not reflect and should not be assumed to represent either one, the actual prices paid for drug products and transactions between wholesalers and their customers, and two, any discounts, rebates, price, et cetera. And so basically it's saying in the second line, this shouldn't be used as a price point. And then right. what's really interesting, and this is how I read it, I mean, this is open for interpretation, but what's fascinating in the second paragraph, it says, Basically, Walters Kluwer does not perform any independent investigation, survey, or analysis to determine whether any pricing information reported to it by manufacturers is an accurate representation of drug prices or sales prices paid by wholesalers, retailers, hospitals, physicians, et cetera. So I'm just like, if anyone were to read this, you would say, why, you know, do we use this? And I think a lot of people, you know, we talk about being disruptive and being innovative and challenging the status quo. It's the status quo is the enemy because someone is trained by someone and they say, hey, this is how we do things. It's AWP. This is how we do yep. things AWP. And I always point this out. If someone says, I have a currency and I say it, it's really very stable and it's not inflationary in nature, my immediate reaction is how do you know unless you have a second currency? I need to peg it to something because you could just tell me that's reasonable. And so for the longest time in the industry, there wasn't a second currency. Very quietly, we began to see traction with national average drug acquisition costs. And I always point this out, is NADAC perfect? No, but it's way better than AWP because directionally it's moving with reality. Like typically over the last five years, generics deflate. But if you look at AWP, it's inflating. And that doesn't make sense to me. Right. And so I, I guess the, the key thing I would want anyone listening to this to understand is right now we have this benchmark, which is AWP, which is really a fictitious benchmark that you just read on their website, really can't be, be reliable or, or trusted. But we have this benchmark that allows for inflation and allows for price variation and ultimately obscures, you know, true pricing and doesn't allow for what I would say is, is true, you know, price transparency that we would want to have in any efficient marketplace. Would you agree? Exactly. You know, and, and I think this is important is you don't know anything, you know, from how bad or good something is without contrast, you know, and I think what AWP lacked was contrast. Like people just said, well, everyone uses AWP, including the federal government uses AWP. So it has to be good. And there's really nothing else out there. And so what we did is we moved to NADAC pricing. I like it because CMS uses it. It's published by them. It doesn't sit behind a paywall. It is a survey of, you know, call it 400 to 600 pharmacies each week that's being asked, has there been any changes? And it's important to remember two things is that one, Price only changes if CMS sees a plus or minus 2% shift. That's the only time it's reporting is a change. So you don't see what I would say, fictitious inflation or variability. The second thing that's unique about it is that it's very quietly been used as a reference point in Medicaid reimbursement. 33 states uses NADAC. Now, we're the only PBM that built a national network around NADAC because I liked it as a pure price source. Is it perfect? Nothing is perfect. But the point of it is it had characteristics that we felt were better, that it was directionally more sound, more stable. 
And it's starting to peel back layers, you know, yeah. of getting back to buyers and sellers freely communicating on price. You're having sellers that are saying, hey, this is roughly on average through a broader survey, what we're acquiring the drug for. And now what I'm able to do to go to the payers is this is what you would buy the drug for because we're not a rent seeker in between. We don't spread the price. We don't artificially manipulate. We don't have MAC prices, et cetera. It's the price is the price set by CMS. I can't change the price until CMS changes it. And that's an important point to remember. Now, people will point out flaws on it and say, well, it's not broadly reported on specialty drugs. And, and my point is 98.5% of all dispensed drugs at retail has an ADAC price. And if you weight that, it's 99.5. So it's a very small percentage when you look at normal dispense drugs at retail. And it's a better price point, but it's still a moving target for perfection. And I always want to point this out is, but if someone were to point out a better price source tomorrow, I would be all ears to moving towards it. And I think that's important. You have alignment with the end payer. Yeah. So first, uh, perfection is is the enemy of progress. So nothing's perfect. (laughs) Capital Rx, as a pharmacy benefit manager, you do not use AWP as a benchmark to to get to the price of the drug that an employer would pay using you guys. You guys use, you mentioned it a number of times, NADAC, but that stands for National Average Drug Acquisition Cost. And that is a closer approximation of what the pharmacy actually pays, right? And, and so in my, my previous simplistic example of where the cost of the drug was $8 and the PBM charged the employer 20, in this instance, you know, whatever the cost of that drug was and the cost for it to be dispensed, if it was eight bucks, that's what the employer is actually going to pay. They'll pay $8 for that drug. And more importantly, they can look up the price themselves. You know, it doesn't sit behind a paywall. It's not some sort of magical source of information. You go to cms.gov, anyone can download the price of these NDC-11s, the drugs that are being dispensed. And this is important. And I think the other part of it is we provide access to the buy and sell side because we want them to communicate where we want the employer to see the reimbursement file to the pharmacies. We want the pharmacies to have visibility to the invoice because what we're trying to do is to create communication because if the sell side the pharmacies wants to signal they have a better price you know a lot of them have been very hesitant to reduce price because when they reduce price in a spread pricing model they're basically giving a raise to whoever the rent seeker is in the middle because the value never makes it downstream to the payer and the plan and this is important to remember so you know when you look at the model it's it's good it's a it's a solid framework and it's an excellent starting point because again it directionally moves in the right way because to your point, it's a reflection of acquisition costs. It's an average of all these different pharmacies, chains, and uh, retailers, you know, stores that are reporting it. Um, and you would like to see more and more pharmacies report in over time. And we're seeing a slight upcre- in, in, you know, I would say uptick in that. In addition, you're seeing some legislation on the Hill that suggests everyone should be reporting into NADAC. So one of the things I, I, I think is intriguing about your model. And I think it took probably one or two or three conversations with you to, for me to, for the light bulb to go on here. But, you know, we see an enormous amount of price variation in, you know, traditional AWP pricing. You know, one, the, the price for one drug could be X at, at one pharmacy and a mile away, the price for that same drug could be 2X, 3X. And, we've always just been amazed at how is this, you know, why is there such price variation, but in your model, that all goes away, right? Correct. There's no ridiculous price variation because you're, you're using the same benchmark and whether it's a pharmacy in Alaska or Texas or New Jersey, it's the same cost. And more importantly, it's the same price if you're in, you know, from CMS in the sense that it doesn't matter if you're standing in a big box store, a national chain, or an independent. Everyone has the same starting point. This is the same price. And, and that's important to remember. The only difference is, is a dispense fee. And that dispense fee is, it's off of acquisition costs. So this is the cost to keep the lights on and a person behind the counter helping patients. Mm-hmm. And it's fair reimbursement. I always want to point this out too, which is, 
it's fair for the payer because they're getting a visibility to acquisition cost and no one is kind of tolling this. Also, it's fair to the payer because it's directionally deflating on generics and slightly increasing on brands, not at the same pace as we're, at least in our data set, tracking with other price sources. This is important to remember. The other thing that I think is helpful to remember is this artificial variability is not being created by the pharmacies. And I say this sometimes to employers, they're like, what do you mean? Isn't the pharmacy setting the price? I go, this is scary. In the US drug system, even though the pharmacies buy the drugs, stock the shelves, they don't set their own prices. Someone be like, well, what do you mean? On any funded transaction, any insured product, I don't care if it's Medicaid, Medicare, I don't care if it's an employer group, et cetera, the price that's transmitted to them is from the PBM and the carrier. So the PBM and carrier is setting the price. So when you see the price of a drug moving every hour of every day in every pharmacy, that is not because the actual price of the drug is changing. And I've been in rooms where consultants have said, what do you mean? Price of a drug changes every hour of every day. And I said, price of a branded drug maybe changes two or three times a year, depending upon where it is in the patent life cycle. It could be a little bit more, it could be a little bit less. And generic is really predicated on your purchasing cycle. You know, it might be more if you're a, a large uh, organization, it might be less if you're a small chain based upon your purchasing agreements. But the point of it is pricing changes maybe once or twice a year for brands, maybe once a month for generics, certainly not every hour of every day, and certainly not different prices to patients in the same pharmacy for the same drug should not be changing in price in that moment. And that was exhausting to me when I used to look at this data, when I used to represent employers uh, on the consultancy side. And I would just be like, why does it exist this way? And, you know, because maybe I'm an interloper and I come from the supply chain side and the manufacturing, back to a world where there are prices and schedules, to a world in which there are words and terms to define not just the price in point in time, but think about it is the PBM contract, they give you an entire year to hit a number. Again, we don't purchase anything else in the United States this way. I don't know why we have a $500 billion industry that still behaves this way. Well, we have it because it's worked very well for the, the people that are uh, you know, promoting it. And uh, I think they've hidden a lot of these things we're talking about to the general you know, public and employers themselves. But I, I want to talk about, I mean, we talked about getting rid of price variation. Um, I, you alluded to it, but I, I want to talk about inflation in the NADAC model relative to AWP. So if you look at what at what we do for our self-insured clients, right? We have to look at historical claims and then we have to, you know, use a trend figure. Trend is, you know, jargon for inflation, right? And so when we're looking at prescription drugs, oftentimes as we're projecting what the funding levels need to be for the next year, I mean, we're, we're looking at, you know, at least 10%, you know, of mm -hmm. uh, trend for prescription drugs. So, talk to us a little bit about how inflation under the NADAC model compares yep. to the AWP. Yeah. So, you know, the first thing to look at is you want to evaluate price. And so this is difficult. You know, I always say you need a, a contrast or a comparison. So, you know, if you look at price, you need to first then say there are, let's just say 120,000 active NDC 11. So this is the most specific price point in the United States. But, you know, that doesn't really help because we don't dispense drugs in the same level for each drug. And each drug obviously has different weighting based upon cost. So what we normally do is we take our book of business because it's a normalized distribution, you know, and at that point, you know, the sample behaves as the entire population and, you know, kind of central limit need things. And so when we look at this, what you're doing is you have this distribution. So you can then begin to take apart segments. So if I, had to look at generic drugs. How do generic drugs compare looking at traditional pricing models using AWP compared to NADAC? And what's interesting is that the prices when we look at the NADAC in comparison to AWP is that we're seeing NADAC deflate 10% year over year on generics. And, you know, and someone would be like, is, is that true? And the answer is yes. You know, and you could look at other, you know, price points. I think, you know, 46 Brooklyn uh, put out a, a report this morning, in fact, that I was, you know, chatting with them about that coincidentally was supportive of, you know, our findings as well. And, 
And when I worked on the supply chain side, I began to see whispers of generic deflation at an aggressive price point because what was happening is the contract manufacturing contracts were shrinking from three-year contracts to one-year contracts to six months. And the PBM or the GPO is knocking on the door and saying, I need you know better pricing. Now, what was happening is on the acquisition cost side, prices were starting to deflate because they were beating up the contract manufacturers and the generic manufacturers more and more. But the payer price point, AWP, was actually showing gentle inflation. And it's a completely, you know, and you would say, how do you have such a split narrative? And I think because of the buy and the sell side can't communicate. Right. You know, you, and, you've got the rent, the rent seeker, the guy in the middle, the guy in the middle is negotiating lower prices on the back end, but inflating them on, you know, to what the payers see well, so he can make a bigger margin. And, and you might say, well, you know, they're just accepting AWP. They're, they're a hapless victim, you know, in this, you know, that, hey, it just happens to benefit us and our cost structure and our pricing structure. But, you know, the point of it is they sit on the same information we do, you know, and so... It's interesting when you see this happening and it's been a way for them to pad profits because most consultants, you know, don't have visibility through the supply chain or aren't thinking about, you know, what's the real value because it's relative value. It seems like all the PBMs are presenting value relative to one another in this way. So it it has to be right. And so when we looked at this model, we wanted to kind of shift this. So when you look at NADAC AWP, I like NADAC because... They're not just deflating, they're deflating dramatically. When we look at the buckets of brand and specialty, we're seeing slightly lower inflation. So they're inflating, which makes sense. It's a branded product. It's going through its product life cycle. So price increases are the norm, but we're not seeing it percent point for percent point. So we're seeing, you know, specialty drugs drag an extra percent. We're seeing brand drugs drag an extra half percent. And this is important because as we know in any kind of bid or trend analysis, if you're not inflating as much or if you're actually deflating on generics, it helps soften the trend. And so just from a price standpoint, not looking at any clinical intervention, not looking at any kind of Uh, changes to the program to either get rid of fraud, waste, abuse, or other areas that we, you know, talk about is just from a price point, you're seeing a softening of the trend. And that's important. For sure. For sure. I wanted to, to, you know, be able to, um, you know, identify the the difference from one model to the other. Let's talk about rebates for a second. So rebates been around for a long time and I've come to see them as essentially bribes from drug manufacturers, you know, for market share. Yep. i.e. They, they drive where a PBM places the drug on the formulary. And I love it when I hear from, you know, clinical folks at PBMs that, you know, their formularies are, are, are driven by, you know, quality outcomes. That, that's all bullshit. To my comment earlier, right, it results in a lot of expensive drugs being covered that have no clinical value. So how are you guys designing your formulary or formularies yep. and to what extent does re- do rebates kind of play a factor in that? Yeah. So, you know, back to my earlier kind of overarching theme of moving from volume to value. I, I genuinely believe the future of medicine is precision medicine. You know, what is the formulary for Michael and what's the formulary for AJ versus what's the formulary for an entire carrier of PPM. That doesn't really make sense, especially with all the science um, moving to gene therapy and the really ways to kind of screen or make sure the best outcome is possible. So you kind of this friction point, you have the old way of doing business, which is I like to control the supply chain if I'm a big carrier PBM because I have the volume and I like this position of buying access because buying access means I can have the PBMs, you know, control the manufacturers in their head and saying, you can bid against each other. And if you want to be on my formulary, you got to pay a little bit more or I'll knock out, you know, you. And so what we want to move to is 
a more precise methodology. And so I always point this out is the first thing is you don't want to have egregious drugs on your formulary. So you don't want to have drugs that have little clinical value and are, you know, just basically pumping up rebates because they look great on a spreadsheet. And so, you know, there, there was an uh, independent consulting group that released to us a list of, you know, 40 drugs that should never appear on your uh, formulary. And, you know, when we did an internal analysis, about 32 were outright not on the list. You know, then we had six of these drugs that had generic alternatives as mandatory. And then the last two were very small percentage of use, but they were medical necessity. Like we didn't feel there was no, any other reasonable alternative um, in the therapeutic class. So, you know, our point is let's start at a fair position and say, we're not here to pump up a spreadsheet analysis. I think there's more than enough value. Manufacturers are being relatively generous with their offers. And I think that what we want to be able to do is to take a more constructive approach. And so we do have, like most PBMs, a general managed formulary or value-driven formulary that's trying to move to specific drugs and certain therapies. But our point is we are getting rid of wasteful drugs, drugs that have low clinical value, drugs that are possibly just optically driven in a rate card analysis. And what we're trying to focus more and more on is this move to precision medicine, moving to value. And so, you know, today, 30% of our client base has a custom formulary. You know, we're seeing a greater uptick in our client base that is taking us up on the opportunity to say, you have an option where, you know, if you just want standard pricing and a standard formula, we can provide that. But if you, if you perhaps you have the experience, like it's a hospital system or some sort of uh, healthcare or physician group, and they have experience in this and they have strong opinions, we're all ears. You know, we'll follow what you're suggesting and work with you. You know, the other way that you can look at it is you can make some suggestions based upon their population you know, which is unique, moving to value. I'm not treating every plan the same. And, you know, ultimately you want to get to, you're not treating every member the same. And, yeah. you know, and that's what you're, the, I would say is the end game in this next decade, because that's what it should be. What is the best care for each person? What you're able to do is you guys aren't tied to a certain formulary because you have to promise certain market share, you know, to a drug manufacturer and that your clients have the ability to absolutely do custom formularies. Yeah, it's a choice. You know, if someone wants to be on our value-driven formulary, you can, which is very similar. But even on our value-driven formulary, we remove much of that waste that we were talking about. But we still offer as an option, if someone says, you know what? I have some thoughts on what we would like to do, or maybe they've always done it. I do have some clients that have always managed their formulary and that's fine. You know, we're willing to support that process. I think where we focus in is we don't keep rebate dollars. You know, we're full pass through, we're full financial pass through. So we do take some extraordinary steps that other people do not in the industry. So we do provide copies of the checks. We do use an aggregator. I do point out that, Mm -hmm. you know, entities such as Anthem and, you know, Aetna use aggregators ultimately. You know, the point of it is that we are showing a copy of the check because I don't want someone to believe that there was some way that we kept money in this transaction. I don't make money on rebates. I make money on a service fee and you have to keep those things separate. This is a conflict of interest, I feel. I think the second part of it that we want to focus on in this is that when you have a client that turns on you know, a formulary and they're expecting rebates, I always felt it was so difficult to determine when I represented an employer group what the exact amount should be because inevitably we'd have arguments about what is defined as a specialty drug, what is not, the specialty list change, drugs are on and off, what is rebatable, what is not rebatable. And, you know, this would drag on and on. It would be one thing if every single PBM behaved the same way or even a PBM behaved the same way across its entire book of business, but every single contract had little nuances or changes. And, you know, it was very complex and difficult. And so what we did is we simplified it. We quote our rebates on a per member per month basis. Why? Because I don't want someone guessing. If you, if you can kind of tell, you know, from the moment we started this interview is I want to move away from fighting about price. I want the market to settle price. I want to give people full transparency to what available in the supply chain. 
I want to earn money because we're invaluable to your organization. We provide better service, better oversight, better outcomes. And if you think about it, if 50% of a traditional PBM's workforce is to keep the good times rolling around traditional pricing, we can shift those resources to technology, better platforms, better build out, as well as better clinical intervention, better customer support, better administrative experience. And that's where I think we've shined as an organization over the last few years. Yeah. So you mentioned something interesting there. So you, you, you're doing rebates on a, uh, you know, per member per month, you know, uh, basis, right. Guaranteeing them. I'll share a a recent client example. You know, we, Mm -hmm. we saw in the data that the volume of drugs in the class shifted significantly. Um, and what we think is happening is that, you know, the PBM is playing games around trying to meet rebate guarantees. And so in your model, because you're doing rebates based on a per member per month basis and not based on a definition uh, that can be manipulated. Is that, is that cleaner for the employer? Well, yes. You just think about it. I can't change the definition of a member. It's binary. You either had a member or you did, you know? And so there's nothing to argue about. So we're on the hook dollar for dollar on a guarantee basis. If you think about it, on those actual guarantees on the rebate side. If I have a per script basis, we could argue about exclusions. We could argue about, you know, my specialty list changed recently or I had a quarterly update. And this is important to remember because when we looked at this, we wanted to create certainty. Now, someone would be like, does this work for or against you? And I always say, if you wear a white hat and you're competing with a bunch of people with black hats and you put them in the laundry, my hat comes out gray. And the reason why is we're coming from such a pure standpoint of a PMPM basis. And my point is, why do you want to convert purity to kind of inaccuracy or, you know, this gray area of what could be versus on a PMPM basis, you know, it shall be. And so what I always try to have, you know, consultants or groups that I work with is I say, ask everyone else to quote their rebates on a per member per month basis, because what's it to them? If they felt so confident they were going to pay out X amount of dollars, you have your numerator and denominator, just divide your rebates by your members and then divide by the months. And then you have an answer. And what's interesting is the resistance you see. And, you know, some of the resistance and to be fair is from the actual PBMs and carriers. And they say, no, I'm going to no bid you. The other resistance is I see from the consultants sometimes because they're afraid to ask for the exact reason I just gave is they're going to get no bid. They know they won't bid if I ask them to do this. And I'm saying, well, you need to get out of your comfort zone in order to change the industry. It can't just be an innovative carrier or PBM or anyone else in healthcare you have to have consultants that are willing to get uncomfortable and are willing to ask the tough questions of everyone. You can't just have someone who's behaving and still judge people that perhaps have a different model. You need to create some symmetry here. And so my point is, I try and say is, I'd rather have, if possible, people quote the way we quote. Let's talk about clinical programs and cost containment for a second. So, you know, I've heard other PBMs say that their rebate contracts don't influence their prior authorization approval rates, which I don't believe for a second. So t- tell us about your PA approval rates compared to a, a traditional PBMs and, and what that might mean for a payer. Yeah. So we just moved to this, you know, in this last year and, and it was an important step for our organization, which was, you know, to do our high touch PA workflow. And this was important because I feel like there are two things you need to remember when you think about this conflict of interest. And it's, it's more than just rebates. So let's think about this for a second. If I'm in the spread pricing business, I naturally like more expensive drugs versus cheaper drugs. Because yes. if I'm going to make 10% on a $50 drug, I prefer to make 10% on a $5,000 drug. And that's an inherent conflict of interest because not only are they making spread through what I'll say, the contractual elements of what is offered to the payer and what is being paid to the retail pharmacy and the male specialty, but PBMs are crafty. They said, you know what? I want to make two margins. I want to make the additional margin of what I acquire the drug for further down the supply chain 
And then what I offer it to the PBM effectively, which is themselves. And that's where we saw the birth of what we saw exclusive male and exclusive specialty, because when you are sole sourcing, if you will, the alpha in the omega, you're the wholesaler to yourself making spread. And then you are obviously making spread naturally in an inefficient market with different payers. You effectively have two moments where you could make more money. And then you have the third one, which is manufacturing because branded drugs are more expensive. And if I have spread pricing on the rebates, so again, the more expensive the drug in a spread pricing program, the more you love it, you make more money on it. And so this is an inherent conflict of interest. So we don't own any dispensing assets. This was, you know, a fundamental decision of our firm. We had plenty of capital opportunities in which to create our own, but we decided not to because you have to make a choice in the healthcare system. And I mean this genuinely. You can either be an, an administrator that has no financial incentive and burden to make the tough decision. Who gets the expensive drug? Did they meet the clinical criteria? Or if you're in the wholesaling dispensing business, you can't be on the clinical side because you have an inherent conflict of interest. The only way, you know, again, is that you need to dismiss this. You need to separate these worlds. And that's what we've done. The other thing on our clinical team, because of this, and we've seen this as we move to our high-touch PA, is we're seeing much lower prior approval rates. So prior authorization comes down significantly. And again, someone might say, well, does that creating a bad member experience? What we point to immediately is we have a net promoter score of 92, which is extraordinarily high in healthcare. So there is this fear, and I definitely felt it when we released it, is this going to create a bad taste in the mouth of the administrator and the patients? And what we found with the high-touch workflow, because really what are you focusing on in high-touch PAs are your most expensive drugs. It is the 2% that drives 50% of cost in any plan. So when we see a new start on a drug, what Sarah and her team on the clinical side is doing is they're making three phone calls. You're making a phone call to the patient because it's a scary time. If someone is being prescribed a biologic for the first time, one, it might be a serious condition, or two, they might be on the drug the rest of their life. Either way, you want to comfort them. You want to say someone is working with you. I'm a pharmacist. I'm going to walk you through this process. The next call goes to the actual physician that prescribed the drug. Do they have the PA criteria? Do they have the paperwork? Do they have any questions? Because we, what we're trying to do is to take a process that normally takes weeks where someone gets lost in that process and compress it down to hours or even days. Because each day that goes by is uncertainty and the patient is suffering. The last call is to the pharmacy. So most people get first start at a retail pharmacy or if you're agnostic, we may allow people you know, under the plan to fill wherever they want. But you wanna make sure if it's a biologic, do they have the inventory? You know, you don't want someone to show up, you know, at the local pharmacy and they say, oh, I got to order that. So that's the next question. You want to coordinate the care. So if someone says, look, I love this pharmacy. I'm all for that. Independent chain, big box. Great. But they say, I want to make sure they have inventory in process. And so, you know, what you're doing, if you look at our end-to-end framework, is I'm not fighting about price. I'm giving full financial visibility to every transaction. We're focusing on the care of the patient. We're removing the conflict of interest. So if we have to make a difficult decision to deny someone access to a drug because they didn't have the right lab test or they didn't at first uh, fail on a lower cost therapy, I think that's fair. And so what we're seeing though is, people actually enjoy the process more. I have case study after case study, testimonial after testimonial from both the administrator side and the patient side saying no one's ever called up and asked me how I was feeling in this process. No one's ever called me up and asked where my prescription was, if I received it, doing proactive outreach. And again, this is what we should be paid for as a PBM, which is administration and care, not price manipulation and setting. And so I, I guess that that's a nice flow to my, my next question is contracts. There's so many games that a PBM can play through deceitful and underhanded contract language that can water down promised results or, or allow undisclosed you know, revenue streams. What are you doing to simplify or improve the contracting process for an employer? When I have the ability, you know, let's point this out, I want to bid our model. And when I provide a contract where I'm working with a partner or a new employer group, you know, the first thing we want to point out is that if you think about it, not from a clinical standpoint, but from a pricing standpoint, this is a fundamental shift. 
we don't care what the definition of a brand generic or specialty drug is. There are just NDC 11s. You know, if you think about, let's just take a big box store, you know, they don't have categories of discounts from sneakers to, you know, frozen food to, you know, auto parts. You know, it makes no sense. You just have a price on flip-flops to bananas. That's just the way other stores work. So let's move to that. Every drug receives a price. So we have a contract where you have price certainty. It's not an estimate. This is important to remember because our drug prices at retail come from CMS. I can't change it. The federal government provides that price point. For retail, I provide a listed NDC 11 for every brand and specialty drug. Again, what I'm trying to do is to bring buyers and sellers together. I don't get involved. All I try and do is when we negotiate is to get the best price point possible. And what's fascinating is when you look at your partners, they're willing, partners being the actual pharmacies, they want to provide good pricing. What they don't want is to be injured by the middleman where they buy a drug for 50 bucks and reimburse $30. And so we're getting rid of that and we're saying, here's fair pricing, here's good value. And so when we focus back at the highest end of the scale in what we're doing, it's really getting back to the fundamental of exposing price and making sure that when you get to contracting, you include price. So for retail, it's NADAC. For mail and specialty, it's a price list. And we do offer a reference point of NADAC for mail and specialty. It's the lower of. And with our partners, it works out great. There's a tremendous amount of value. And then as I mentioned before with rebates, I'll give you a copy of the check. And more importantly, when we look at this together, We want to make sure that people understand is that we're aligned in this process, start to finish. And so when we quote it, it's on a per member per month basis. You don't, you know, I I always want to point this out. I'm pretty confident most employer groups and their consultancy can multiply the members by the rebate number, you know, and and it's straightforward. You know, what I'm saying is that's not an easy process. If you've ever looked at any, you know, traditional contracts, you would think I'm going to multiply at 6,000 specialty drugs and I multiply by this number and wait, the numbers don't match. What happened? Well, well, maybe, maybe a good proxy for the diff- difference in contracts is how many pages is yours versus the traditional 100-page contract that you might get from a regular Yeah, period. so it's, it's 25 pages is the base contract. Obviously, the pricing schedules are several hundred, you know, if you wanted to go through all NDC 11s. But the point of it is you can download it from CMS, but for our mail specialty, we provide it as well. And, and this is important because the, the framework that you're going to argue about, like in a typical contract is 25 pages compared to 50 to 100, because I have nothing left to argue about is my point. I've, I've, I've tried to flip my chair around. How would I want to look at a contract if I was an administrator? And my point is, I want you not to control price. I want you to give me full financial transparency. And I want a reference point is if this price is fair and yep. that you can't control it. And I always want the lesser of logic in that, which is important to remember. And this is extremely helpful. Um, and so that's why we're able to simplify the contract so much. Because think about it. Where do you spend most of your time arguing in a traditional contract is what's the definition of a brand? What's the definition of a generic, multi-source, single source, DAW handling, and the litany of other things that could reappear. You thought you addressed it on page 20, but magically it reappears on page 46 and suddenly supersedes the language in the prior section. And so this is what exhausted me. And if someone told me that, well, all PBM contracts are the same. Every single PBM and carrier has a different definition of brand, generic, specialty, single source, multi-source, et cetera. They all have different ones. Which we all know true, Which is truly and, and it, unreal. <laughs> and each year there are changes. And then across a broader book of business, this is what I go back to is winners and losers. And there are winners that might have added help or spent more time or they're just bigger, whatever, and they may have a slightly better contract and there might be smaller employees that, you know, they handled it themselves. They didn't benefit from expert consultancy or it was a renewal and they weren't thinking, whatever it may be, there are winners and losers. I point this out all the time because on one end of the scale, there might be the federal government and TRICARE and Fortune 20 companies. On the other end, there's a 500 life case. Yep. If you think these price points are the same, you should broaden your discussions. (laughs) 
For sure. For sure. So we haven't talked about results yet. So what type of results and savings might an employer expect when using capital RX versus a traditional PBM or even, you know, fully insured carrier? Yeah. And, you know, and I always want to preface this, you know, everyone always says, Hey, you know, give me 10 minutes and I'll save on your insurance. Or, you know what I mean? Like, you know, they're going to give, and I want to be fair about this, which is, I don't want to say broadly, this is the number because every single case provides different opportunities and difficulties. And so you could have a large plan that's well-managed and you might be able to decrease some cost through what we would say the deflationary nature of NADAC coupled with this full financial visibility. You also though, it shouldn't be under overlooked is you can save money through what I call the reduction in conflicts of interest. So if I have a prior authorization rate in the low 70s and you're coming from the high 90s, naturally your most expensive new starts are going to be kind of flattened. And that's going to help dramatically in your trend because the costliest component of pharmacy is the proliferation of specialty drugs. You're also going to see what we call our lower net cost, you know, decreasing, you know, the value, which is we don't have wasteful drugs in our formulary. We have lower net cost calculations that we do in our formulary to try and tamp that down. I think the other area you're going to look at at it is you have hard edits to prevent what we would say bad behavior. So the classic, someone is still using Lipitor, even though a Torvastatin has been around for you know six plus years at this point. But the point of it is you wouldn't believe how many times you take over a plan and there are AB rated generics and just just going through because they were grandfathered, they've been around so long. And you know, most employers I always want to point this out they shouldn't be reluctant to think about this because most employers have a deductible or co-insurance at this point. So the members are often super excited to know that they're not paying $600, they're paying 30 bucks. Yeah. You know, and so there are opportunities, you know, to reduce costs. So in totality, what we always say is when we look at our trend reduction, it is much lower than the industry, hands down. And part of it is it's all of these factors. I always want to point this out. There's no one magic solution because each one of these things may play a more important or a less important role depending upon the drug utilization, the demographics, the size of the client, et cetera. But the point of it is, is that we're doing two things. We're giving you this full financial transparency. And because of this, we could focus on the better service. And with better service, it's not just better care. Every time we do a quarterly review, I tell my clinical team and my account management team, I need two ideas for the client. It drove me crazy when I was at employer meetings, when I was on the other side of the table, and I'd hear an hour-long presentation dicing up, you know, these are the 20 most utilized drugs for brand, the most 20 most utilized drugs, et cetera. And it would go on for hours and you'd be like, okay, and the only should, recommendation what should I, would make, what should I do what, now? What, what do we do? Yeah. And, and a lot of the programs were self-serving. We think you should go to mandatory mail. We think you should go to exclusive specialty. We think you should go to our new value driven formulary. And this is difficult. What I'm saying is every account is different. And I point this out all the time is it's the DNA in the company. I could have two, 3000 life cases. And one could be, let's just say a construction company. And one could be an advertising firm. They have, very different demographics. They have very different utilization patterns. But what's fascinating is in the eyes of the PBMs and the carriers, it's the same formulary and the same report for both of them. And this makes no sense to us. So when we look at these plans, we're saying, what am I solving for? You know, think about it. Has anyone ever stepped back for a second and say, am I reducing costs? Am I reducing costs and looking at better clinical outcomes? Am I looking at better service? Is Do you want to expand benefits? You know, and so a lot of times we get so caught up on just reducing cost, we forget that healthcare is an investment. And this is where we do spend a lot of time is that we do have some very advanced reporting. So we do integrate medical, we do integrate the pharmacy, we do look at time and attendance because what we're trying to do is if someone says, give me some unique programs relative to my population, we want to create an ROI story because I don't want the head of HR to be set up for failure in the eyes of their CFO. Because the CFO is going to be like, if I look at pharmacy in a vacuum and it was $3 million last year, you know, the win for me is 3-3 three, three and we can go out and have lunch. I want them to be thinking of, you know what? 
what if it was 3-3, but we were able to reduce other costs, be it on the medical side or just better productivity? Because we call it the law of zeros and people forget about this all the time that, you know, if you were really to think about it for a second, and I, and I point this out, if I have, let's just say a million dollars in drug spend, I might have 3 million or so, if you were to think about it on the uh, medical side, but you have 500 to $600 million in payroll carrying that much headcount. And so when you look at efficiency to a CFO, you want to present things in a way in which you can rationalize value. And so going back to being freed from some of the, what I would say, barriers to having kind of a more disciplined and productive view. So yes, when we sit down with clients, we always want to have two ideas. We want to rationalize in our, and they may not choose to use them. Yep. But I think every single time I've been in the room with our clients or I've been on the phone call with them, I can tell they're excited and they all say the same things. No one's ever given me any advice like this before. It's clear that, you know, I think that there can be some, some savings that can be achieved for, for employers in this model, but it's, it's much more about the savings. You know, I think the transparency, yep. the uh, removal of misaligned incentives, and, you know, I think it sounds like you're, you're trying to position yourself as, you know, we're not just an administrator, you know, we're, we're trying to, you know, provide good quality care, but also provide, you know, the reporting um, so that you can make actually, you know, good business decisions, you know, around managing your spend. Yeah, data-driven insights. You know, you, you, you know, it's one thing to have an opinion, but I need to back it up with either clinical evidence and or an ROI. And, you know, for every client that I have that's looking to save money, you know, I do have some clients out there that are looking to invest in healthcare, but no one's ever really given them some good ideas. Yeah. And so yeah. you can't treat every client the same way. I think presently with the current crisis, we are seeing a lot more employers looking for savings, but they're looking for savings in ways that is not injurious to their population. And I think, again, this is where we can shine because we can help them create kind of a tiered approach. You don't want to basically transition everything at once to uh, a more streamlined plan or to take a, a harder look at some of these edits. You know, what you want to do is you want to basically pace appropriately with HR and their member base and say, oh, they responded well to this. Let's take it to step yeah. B. And I, and I think we're seeing a lot more of that this year. Well, I'll tell you what my favorite idea right now is in this COVID-19 environment. It's, you know, as employer groups, you know, struggle with the economic impact here is, you know, people should be out there looking for savings, but finding opportunities to reinvest a portion of those savings. And one of my favorite ideas, you know, right now around pharmacy is go find yourself, you know, the right partner who can, you know, have aligned incentives with you, drive some savings, but reinvest some of that in your employees in the form of how about no copays for, you know, drugs that, you know, patients with chronic disease and illness need diabetes medication, hypertension, hyperlipidemia. Let's just make it free. Why charge the employees anything if it can increase inherent adherence? And so to me, I think that's what, you know, those are, those are things that are very complementary to each other. Drive some savings, reinvest them. Yeah, we had some great success stories uh, at the end of last year and enabled us to this year with some of our employer groups really make some monumental shifts. So one of them was I had kind of a public entity, a public sector group, and you know they had a 30-day wait period before benefits would kick in. But because we had such savings from the prior year, they were able for the first time to get rid of their 30-day wait period. And that was awesome that we felt great about it. The employees felt great about it. The administrators felt great about it. It was a win because it was a public sector group, obviously. You know, we saw it with another group as well. Very similar, had a great amount of savings. And we were saying, you know what? You can reinvest this. And what they decided to reinvest in, you know, and had nothing to do with the benefit side is they were able to extend leave for some non-exempt and exempt employees that hadn't in the past. And, you know, again, this was offering a better benefit package, but they were using dollars that came from the pharmacy side. And again, it was our programs that were able to enable this. And, you know, they obviously gave us a huge amount of credit for helping them and even having them think through, is there anything that you wanted to spend money on? 
you know, we had another group as well. They had, they added a, a, a very generous fertility program because of what they were looking at as well. And so, you know, we as an organization, you know, what we're constantly trying to do is to work with the partners to see what is it that we're solving for? Take a deep breath and ask the question. Yep. Well, hey, we, we are well over our, uh, our allotted time here, but it's a great discussion, AJ. I've, I've loved this. Um, if there was one question that I should have asked you, but I didn't, what would it be? Whew. Uh, what do you think the future of pharmacy benefits is? All right, shoot. What do you think the future of pharmacy benefits is? Well, I think the future of pharmacy benefits is focusing on this notion that care is going to become more personal is that we do have the systems, we do have the therapies and the treatments that are beginning to unlock our DNA and our kind of our own personal outcomes, you know, to medication. And I think this is so critical. It's the personalization of the actual therapy that's prescribed to me based upon who I am. It's also looking at my treatment. So we talk about things like today it's medication and a pharmacy benefit, but I can make an argument that diet plays a strong role in a lot of therapeutic categories. And that why can't we look at food as a medication? Why can't we create a pharmacy benefit program that includes some level of what I would say uh, grocery care, if you will. You know, you create a package around it. Talk about investing in the health of your members. And I think it's also communication with the member. And you don't want to make it so it's intrusive, but I think the future of care, I think about my own life. And, you know, I looked at, you know, the last few years and how I rely on different electronic devices, be it reminders to keep me on point for my calendar, or just to be thoughtful of different things in my life. And so, I look at that as healthcare going back to becoming more precise, the precision of medicine and more personal to me and having me, you know, kind of have like an AI coach for my medication and my treatment. And I think this concept of the AI health coach integrated into pharmacy is somewhere where we're investing in heavily, where we're looking at more and more ways where we can leverage a good experience where, again, if someone doesn't want the reminders, they can turn it off, but have a better bi-directional communication. I love it. And I, I can't wait till we get to that, uh, that future state. So AJ, how can people interested in Capital Rx learn more? Well, to learn more about CapillarX, I mean, you could certainly go to our website, which is uh, www.cap-rx.com. You know, um, if anyone uh, would obviously contact and work with you, we'd love to obviously uh, partner and figure out a way that we could work directly um, through you, as, you know, directly and people have your contact information. So I think, you know, those would be the two ways I would recommend. Great. Well, AJ, on behalf of our listeners and myself, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to, to join us. It's been a great discussion and, and hopefully very insightful for our listeners. Thank you so much, Michael. I enjoyed our time. All right. And to our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. And with that, we'll sign off wherever you're at. We hope you have a great day and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you liked what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to Capital Rx's website and contact information. Lastly, we welcome your feedback on the content that we're bringing to you on the show. Let us know what you think with a review. It's super easy and takes five seconds. Just open up the podcast app on your phone, go to our show's page, scroll down to the bottom of the page, and let us know what you think. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast.